There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Anne McAlvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks Bill Gates, tech entrepreneur and philanthropist, whether philanthropy has reached its limits. Well, our foundation has worked with every administration and found areas of common need, partnered together. Absolutely, we're going to sit down with the new people and understand how they look at things, where we can work together. This administration deserves to have all of us giving them advice, engaging in the best way we can. It's over 40 years since Bill Gates co-founded the software developer Microsoft and its range of programs from Office to Windows dominate our PCs worldwide. That success has made him one of the world's wealthiest men. In 2006, he stepped down as Microsoft's full-time CEO to run the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It's handed out more than $36 billion in grants in that time, mainly to improve health and life outcomes in some of the world's most challenging countries. Together with the investor Warren Buffett, Bill has founded the Giving Pledge, in which some extremely well-heeled people give a substantial proportion of their worldly gains to philanthropic ventures. But how far can such voluntary giving solve some of the world's biggest problems, from childhood mortality to available contraception? And at a time when so many people doubt scientific fact, wider evidence-based solutions sometimes struggle to win public trust. To delve into philanthropy's means and ends, I met Bill Gates in New York, where he was launching his annual newsletter. And first I wanted to know whether he was thinking of approaching the new president to share some of his wealth with the Giving Pledge. You've been very good at getting people to put their hands in their pockets and do some thinking at the same time. Would you ask Donald Trump to make the billionaire pledge or do you think he might not be well off enough? Well, the Giving Pledge is... is you know, people who are focused on philanthropy, doing a lot of giving, you know, in his case, you know, after he's done with his political career, he'll have a great opportunity. He will have learned a lot. I don't know uh, whether he'll join, but we're open to anyone always trying to get more people engaged. Have you already asked him before he was running? No, I haven't. I My first time to meet him was actually in December after he'd been elected. And then, you know, we talked about innovation and HIV and all the kinds of things we were doing. And, you know, he was very positive about the foundation, the philanthropy. And, you know, so I hope that dialogue continues. And every year you write this letter, uh, you write it to Warren Buffett. Particularly this year, you've spoken about the importance of reducing childhood deaths, infant mortality, and the importance of vaccines in that. What's stopping progress here? Well, the progress is is quite phenomenal. In fact, it's accelerated over the last 15 years. The world created the Global Alliance for Vaccines, uh, which the U.S. government's been very generous. The U.K. government uh, and many other countries and our foundation are partnered together to help get the vaccine prices to be as low as possible for the poorest countries and 
to make sure the money's available. So now we need to get those delivery systems to improve a bit, and we need to invent some new vaccines. But the, the trend line has been absolutely phenomenal, and most people aren't aware that, that we've cut childhood deaths in half, and vaccines played the major role there. Yes, you can see the graph that you, you've used there showing that very starkly in the newsletter. I'm very happy to see it's an economist graph too. But one point that is obviously on the agenda at the moment is evidence-making policy. You sponsor that kind of approach to some of the world's biggest problems, improving outcomes for child health, for control of fertility, the three-month contraceptive jab, evidence based policies are probably under more pressure, even more attack, not least uh, here in the United States than they've ever been. What's your thinking about how to approach that? Well, I don't know what the alternate to evidence-based policy is. There is a discussion about how, by saving lives, we create security, we create markets, we avoid pandemics. You know, there's as budgets are tight, this idea of the relative priority of things like PEPFAR, which is the U.S. stepping up with literally $5 billion a year to provide HIV medicines to save millions of lives in Africa, you know, because you have to take those medicines lifelong, if that money's not there, you know, it means those, those people will die from HIV. So, you know, there's a discussion about priorities, but it's there is no alternative to evidence-based activity, whether it's anti-poverty programs or education programs or, you know, scientific research. But some people do think that there are alternatives that are perhaps more belief-based. A, a, a couple of examples. President Trump's discussed appointing Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a proponent of somewhat disproven theories linking vaccines to autism to chair a vaccine safety commission. So how worried are you that that kind of decision which may not go forward, but if, if it did, or the kind of thinking that lies behind it will affect the progress that you've made, the kind of progress that you describe in the newsletter. Well, it's very important to have people understand how carefully vaccines are examined, the safety of the individual vaccines, the appropriateness of that vaccine schedule. You know, So if it's an opportunity for us to have people see the facts and you know, people want to protect their children you know, facts sometimes get behind negative rumors. And we see that relative to vaccines in all sorts of countries. You know, maybe there's some visibility here that's a chance to really straighten out the record and and make sure that, that diseases where even, even if a small number of kids aren't vaccinated, like measles or pertussis, that we don't get into that situation. So you're saying be very careful before you make that kind of appointment. Is, is that the message? Was it to simply say people should weigh up the evidence, perhaps on many issues, that's not where they're minded at the moment. The government is a powerful voice. And so if there's ever a commission on a topic, I don't know if there will be, the important thing will be the conclusion. Because, you know, I've had a chance to look at the scientific evidence on the vaccine schedule and the benefits. And it's one of the biggest things our foundation puts money into. And it's why the millions of lives have been saved. Vaccines are really quite miraculous. And in order to preserve their reputation, it's why we're so careful about making sure no vaccine gets approved without immense study of uh, does it interact with the other vaccines or their side effects. Vaccines are amazing. Sure, but if I were minded, if I were the people who thought that there was a link between vaccines and autism, 
and a substantial number of people do, and they seem to be getting perhaps more of a, a pulpit, or may get more of a pulpit as we go forward in this administration than in the last, doesn't that worry you? Well, there's an opportunity to let people know that those concerns are unfounded, that it was withdrawn, it was, you know, there never was any evidence in that direction, that there have been huge multi-country studies that have shown there that connection does not exist. You know, the anytime we can get that out there, you know, I, I think that's helpful to people. And maybe there's some people who harbor that view where this will be a chance to to straighten it out. Let's talk about another area where there is sometimes an argument about the good intentions, the means, uh, and what people would like to accept. And you talked about contraception in the letter. Melinda also uh, focuses on that, uh, pointing out that 300 million women in developing countries are now using modern methods of birth control, and as well as being able to choose family size, this has other other good impacts uh, on health, obviously on how they can space their families out. But there is an executive order, uh, or at least there is an expected executive order, uh, to cut federal funding to international groups that perform or even provide information on abortions. Are you able to separate these two issues? Well, certainly contraception and abortion are two different things. You know, some organizations just do contraception and some, you know, when they're talking to a mother will counsel them about abortion and our foundation is involved in making contraception so easy to get to that any woman who wants it, even in a poor country, even in a rural area, can have access. It's been shown that that will reduce the number of abortions. That's a good thing. But even more importantly, it in, improves the health of that family. The woman can space the births, and if she has three or four children, that's enough. Then uh, she'll have more resources to focus on those children or have time where she's out earning money as well. And so there is a shift to lower fertility, but in these poor countries, it needs to be a priority to get contraception out there. And so, you know, anything that slows that down, you know, we're, is an unfortunate thing. Anything that slows that down is an unfortunate thing. Yes. But then, so what would your advice be? I mean, you've dealt with governments all over the world. You've, you've dealt with governments that some are more difficult than, than others from, from your point of view. And you've got an immense pulpit here. So are you saying on this question, it's better perhaps for people to accept that there, there might be a pulling back on the kind of federal aid for advice on abortions and focus on contraception? Or are you saying, actually, both of these need to be part of a policy mix when it comes to helping women in the developing world and their family size? Well, we're involved in contraception and making those tools cheaper and and more available. And it's yet to be seen in the U.S. budget where, like the European donors, there's some money given that helps make these available to women so that they don't have to pay for them and therefore you encourage their use. It's yet to be seen what happens to that budgetary piece. That, that's certainly true. But you know, how far would you go in saying, well, this is something that's so important that really, you know, don't do anything that holds us back? I mean, are you prepared to put yourself out there to fight that fight? Well, certainly, we're the foundation spending the most on 
uh, new contraceptives and helping to get those contraceptives out there. Melinda is very passionate about that. You know, we're going to stay f- focused on that. Uh, so this fund, U.S. funding decision, whether they stay involved, will be key. Making sure that whatever policies don't have a dramatic reduction in that contraception availability will be, you know, looking hard because we we do think it's great. It's great for women. How are your relations with the Vatican on that question, and have you engaged that? Uh, yeah, my wife Melinda is Catholic, and she has met with the church a number of times and you know talked about our focus on contraception and why we think that's a good thing. And you know, for most Catholics, it's not controversial just having the the tools of contraception. That's not to say all of them, but the church on that piece you know, hasn't been as, as, you know, saying no, you know, let's not have, have contraception. And so I think she feels good about the dialogue she's had there. The Catholic Church is involved in a lot of great work in poor countries where nuns and donations go in and create health capacity. And so, you know, we're working with a lot of those organizations, and a lot of them are actually good, good partners for all the health stuff we do. Do you think that there is a change? We have a relatively progressive, open-minded Pope. Do you think the Church is moving in your and Melinda's direction on the question of contraception, particularly in the developing world? In contraception over the last 50 years has become less and less controversial. Abortion remains very controversial, but the idea that a woman should have access to contraception, uh, whether you poll Catholics or you know other religion, that idea that choice that's made about when and how many children to have for the woman or or the family that that's come a long ways there's a, a difficult call here isn't there for the those of you who've put yourselves out in, into the, the public debate and you know, put your fortunes behind it really as the big philanthropist how much do you feel yourselves now waging a battle on behalf of evidence-based policies in populist times. The mood of your letter, it's its so well reflected. It looks like it's based on, you know, as we know, we've you know, talked about where you get your evidence from. But the mood is not like that. You know, the, the last election didn't end up with a technocrat in the White House. I don't really see a move against evidence. I de- do see new leadership in both the U.S. and U.K., and uh, historically, a few percent of the budget has been to save tens of millions of lives, you know, saving these lives literally for under $1,000 of life saved. Some voters think those, those foreign aid percentages are very, very high, you know, like over 10%, whereas even for the UK that is more generous as a percentage of its economy than the U.S., it's only a few percent of the budget. So proving to people that there's great things happening there, it happens with great efficiency, it's not a, a story of corruption, it's a, a story of amazing progress, that'll be important as the, the new leadership, uh, which we could have in France and Germany as well. You know, Now you've got you know, four of the four biggest donors in the world uh, that uh, showing them the evidence about the impact and you know, getting these constituents to say, yes, we still care about uh, these humanitarian things, that'll be particularly important. So what's your message to Theresa May on that, in, certainly in the conservative 
party and uh, I'd say in the public, you know, there is quite a lot of scepticism about the foreign aid budget. Well, the opportunity to see the immense positive impact, whether it's reducing HIV deaths or getting contraception out or getting vaccines out, the increase in UK aid that happened under the conservative government and became you know, a policy of the government really has had wonderful impact. Now, there's people who try to undermine it with a story here or there, but the reason I'm putting billions of dollars of my money into exactly the same thing, working in partnership with the UK government, is because aid has never been better spent than it is right now, and it serves a lot of purposes, whether it's security, saving lives. You know, this is great work that people should be proud of. question comes in from social media, which says, in the light of the election results, here in the United States. What do you see as you next for your own role as well as other business leaders and influencers? I do you have to kind of enter into a battle against a, a rising tide of populism, not to put too fine a point on it? Well, sticking up for the saving lives, you know, the PEPFAR that saved millions from dying of HIV or the malaria initiative that literally saved millions of children by getting bed nets out there, because it's far away and because people see challenges in delivery, the fact that we are spending our money, we get out there, we see it, we always have to get that visibility up because there are many government priorities. And you know, I'm hopeful as people know this story, they'll be proud of what's been done and that few percent of the budget that they'll want to maintain that that global leadership. But does that mean you do have to engage the argument in a sense more full on? And I, I, I'm not asking you to, to comment on the, the, the first days of Donald Trump, but there is a mood which is very distinct. People see it perhaps most clearly in America, but there are also signs of it elsewhere. And whether you call it a revolt against reason or whether you call it a retreat from globalization, there is a feeling that there's a skepticism towards technocrats, there's a skepticism towards elites and lots of things that they stand for and embrace. And that might just include you. Well, I don't think any leader is really arguing for a isolationist approach. In fact, you know, the UK's talked about their how proud they are of the scientific research and uh, wanting to use new flexibility to get internationally engaged. And and so how you engage, you know, are you willing to have a few percent that uplifts these countries and gets them to be self-sustaining? That's really the discussion. And what people aren't seeing the results, you know, they're they're hearing whatever controversy that people who are against it want to bring up. So it is a time where we have to tell uh, that story better than ever, you know, get as many people to actually go and see it as possible. I, ideally, all the politicians would go out and, you know, see firsthand, talk to families that have children who've survived. So, yes, the, the debate will always be there. Should countries help other countries? But that wasn't really what I asked. I asked you about a, a mood. And really, does that mean a change in the way that you have to engage in argument? Should you perhaps come forward more? Are there other, or do you prefer to do it? I know, for instance, that you, you, know, you, you spoke to, to President Trump before the election. What is your message that squares what you stand for and what he very firmly and sometimes even stridently stands for? Well, innovation that helps the poorest and gets them better health, cheaper energy. Those are a good deal. They're a good deal for the world. They're a good deal 
for the countries that that do that research. So, you know, UK science on new vaccines, US science on new vaccines. I'm hoping uh, that 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 will be maintained or even increased. You know, some areas like protecting ourselves from epidemics, we haven't put enough money into those things. Then, you know, getting them delivered out into the countries of Africa, where China's stepping up its role there, and the U.S. wants to have a presence. The the U.K. has always had an amazingly, you know, high influence on these things. You know, I hope the the countries will main, maintain that engagement. But, you know, I've been very public about my belief in these things. You know, will we up how much we're out there talking about these things this year? Perhaps, because... Uh, these are years where the policies for the next four or five years will be put into place. But I think there is, there's a bit of a divide, isn't there, on what to do at the moment. And some people would say it's best. You've just got to take your argument very strongly to the door of the White House. You have to take it to the new administration. And others say, well, that's sort of normalizing what some people regard as, a, as not a normal presidency. What's yours? Well, our foundation has worked with every administration and found areas of common need, partnered together. As I said, the last Republican administration was one of the most generous in creating uh, this AIDS AIDS relief and new malaria activities. And so absolutely, we're going to sit down with the new people and understand how they look at things, where we can work together. And, you know, i I'm sure we'll, we'll get a good hearing. Whether we'll succeed, you know, will depend on how how good those arguments are. It sounds like you believe that freezing out the new administration or Donald Trump wouldn't work. This administration deserves to have all of us giving them advice, engaging in the best way we can. Where do you think the development agenda, the world's poorest indeed, would be left if globalization did go into a retreat? Well, the world's poorest depend on the global economy, which creates export opportunities. They depend on science to invent new drugs and vaccines and, and deal with their health challenges. Uh, they depend on, on foreign aid, which you know helps them get out of the poverty trap and get to a point where they will be self-sufficient. A lot of countries have graduated. You know, South Korea was an aid recipient, now a, a big aid donor. And you know, if, we, if we're not generous to those countries, yes, things in some cases will literally become unstable. There'll be uh, an increased source of epidemics. Their economies won't uh, grow in a way that creates global opportunity. So a bit of an unfashionable word in some quarters, you stand by globalization. I stand by doing research to help the world's poorest. I stand by aid to the world's poorest. I stand by, you know, trade is complicated in between rich countries that the in in general it's it's been a, a very good thing but to help the poorest you know shines out even if you're going to change the rules of trade between rich countries helping out these poor countries seems like that's unarguable what about the limits of philanthropy the question we set out at the start if i could just uh, you know pull out a couple of questions on that some people do see it as a reflection of a distortion perhaps a benign outgrowth of inequality that would be better tackled at source through the tax system or, or by forcing a, a redistribution. It doesn't, the incredible generosity that many have shown, and you've certainly led the way, and we've, we've seen also big commitment from Mark Zuckerberg and others, it hasn't stopped a sense of anger or populism, has it? Well, philanthropy is very small, and so you can't expect it. It's not going to 
fund education systems or, or health systems. It's even in the U.S., where it's largest, it's it's less than two percent. So it can fund a lot of great nonprofits. It can help fund some research. It, it can take risks and do pilot programs that other sectors can't. But the dominant sectors in our society are going to be the private market, which is by far the biggest, and then government. And philanthropy is this tiny little thing that is hopefully shedding a light that that helps those others uh, function better. I do have any fears for the future of philanthropy. That was a, a question that came in on social media for you. Well, the, the philanthropy, it varies by countries. You know, if you have an estate tax uh, that, like the U.S. does, where it encourages philanthropic giving, if you have a tax deduction that encourages philanthropic giving, tax policies can change in a way that uh, you might see a reduction in philanthropy. But overall, as the world's getting richer, I do see philanthropy growing, you know, and so that it, it, worldwide it's less than 1%. You know, it has a chance, if everybody is joining in, to get up to this, this 2% level that we see in the U.S. Do you think you've done better? In, looking at your focus on, on health, do you think you've done so much better on health than you've done, broadly speaking? I'm using you as a representative of the trade, if I could, as the philanthropist in the room. If you look at education technology, which I know you've also invested in, you've also been committed to, you know, we've been talking about this for, for decades. It's a job I, I covered sort of for, for five years. And yet, is there a bit of a, a fail here when we look at how the big tech companies have kind of gone round and round the question of personalising learning, delivering it at low cost? It seems to lag behind what we've achieved in health. Well, certainly the education numbers have not improved either globally or in the U.S. like they have in health. In health, you know, we've cut childhood death in half. If you look at math and reading scores, they basically have stayed flat. And you see, you know, countries that are way, way behind where there should be, even some countries who spend a lot on education. The solving how you use software to do education, that's not something the big tech companies, they create platforms, but they're not that engaged in it. I do see a lot of hopeful things being done. You know, if you go to some of the charter schools like Summit, the way they're using software, some of this personalized learning stuff. But it's fair to say that we've had unbelievable success in health, and we just want to do more of that. In education, although through charters and some technology, we have points of light that are very exciting, amazing results. In aggregate, the scores have not moved much, and so that, you know, it's still to be achieved. It's interesting that you succeeded where a lot of people said you might fail. With AI, you kind of kept the faith with it and in terms of having an impact, that it, it sort of did come on stream. But well, you would have to say that in, in education, it's been more patchy, hasn't it? Small school movement didn't really exactly sort of take the world by storm we've seen things like bridge international academies with their own problems that we've written about in the economist at the moment is there something that makes you think on education there might be whether it's through the foundation or whether it's the companies themselves that we might be going at it the wrong way you know, things like deep learning came from outside the mainstream any insights on that well deep learning came from academia where most computer science and research has, has come from and you know it required patience and time and and faster computing and is now you know moving it at full speed and that'll create tools that are useful for lots and lots of things. The education isn't 
the it, you know that's government funded there isn't as a percentage there isn't that much technology in education but philanthropists are you know, funding some very promising things and so i you know i'd say 10 years from now i do expect that like not in neil and connie's x step work or bridge which happens to be a for profit or con or this uh you know summit schools personalized learning a lot of these things really will have a very positive impact what is the to look forward to and how confident are you that the worst predictions of what the next year holds in America won't come to pass? Well, most big improvements don't happen in a year. It's like 10 years. So in a 10-year time frame, you know, vaccine for HIV, uh, you know, polio success, better tools for education, there's a lot of great things that will have happened. I'm, I don't have any particular expertise on, you know, the next year, but I do know that these innovations in energy, education, health, there's a lot to be optimistic about there. Thank you very much for joining us, Bill. Thank you. This week's guest on The Economist Asks was Bill Gates. And if you have any thoughts on what Bill had to say or the challenges he outlines, do put them in an email, send them our way to radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. In New York, this is The Economist. Economist.